there are two words that are probably responsible for launching more failed businesses than any other two words in the English language and probably in history. Great job. This episode is more of an opinion. It's my opinion. And it's an opinion about one of my biggest pet peeves. And it is linked directly to trust, to lack of trust, the decline of trustworthiness, and the decline of excellence and exceptionalism. I will be using my trust model to explain it right after this. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of The Trust Show. I'm your host, Yoram Solomon, a researcher of trust and the author of The Book of Trust. In this educational podcast, I will share with you everything that I know and discovered about trust. I will challenge you to think differently about trust, but not only will I teach you about trust, I will also give you actionable advice on how to build trust, be trusted, and know who to trust. Because the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? There was a study done in 1997 by Greg Stevens and Jane Burley. And what they try to do is to find how many raw ideas did it take to generate one successful, successful, sustainable commercial launch of a product. So specifically, they talked about products and they looked at the uh, pharmaceutical industry as well as uh, other industries. Actually, in general, it was mostly focused on other industries. And when we talk about an idea, we talk about something that's, you know, not just... I had an idea. Oh, never mind. I'm talking about somebody bringing up an idea, a serious idea that they take seriously. How many did it take? Well, what they found was that it took 3,000 ideas to have one commercially successful product launch. So those 300 ideas they kind of looked at the funnel and what they found was that 300 of them, so 1 in 10, they took minimum action. And minimal action included experiments, that they, they did some experimentation, they filed patents maybe, or filed disclosures for patents, they discussed them with management. So so it's not, you know, it's it's way beyond the I have an idea. So these are 300 of them. So from that level, your probability of commercial success is 1 in 300. 125 of the 300 went to a small project. So now you're receiving a patent. You're actually granted a patent. You're investing money. You're investing time and energy. 125 of them. So from this point, you have 1 in 125 probability of success. 9 of the 125 became significant projects with men, major investments. So now we're talking big money, a lot of people, uh, the, the more, much more, let's say, from the uh, small projects, and, uh, and with more money. 
four of the nine were considered by by the authors uh, the researchers to be major efforts and 1.7 were actually commercially launched so we're launching it we're sending the products we're we're putting all the marketing behind it and so on 1.7 and out of the 1.7 59% one of them was commercially successful was really commercially successful so when we're talking about the quality of an idea and when we say that it's great idea we need to keep in mind that if we think of a business idea and great idea is this is the one that's going to be commercially successful right we're not considering oh i had an idea Ah, never mind we don't consider this to be a great idea a great idea is really an idea that led to a commercial success the odds are one in three thousand so one in three thousand ideas we should say great idea you know what even if we said one in three hundred you know once we take minimal action and and we consider those ideas it's still one in three hundred is a great idea and 299 are not even one in 25 even one in nine you know when when they're becoming a significant project with major investment they already received patents only one in nine would actually be a great idea because only one in nine at this stage would be commercially successful do we use the words great job only once in nine or once in 125 or in 300 or in 3000 ideas i think we use it a little more I'll tell you a little personal story. I was born with big feet and uh, I was afraid of the water initially and somehow my mother managed to convince me to uh, to get into a pool and to start training and I started training and what they found was that my big feet actually were an asset for swimming breaststroke. And so this was, I believe, 1978 or something like that. Uh, I, I was pretty young, but but I was kind of at the, the right age for maybe being in the 1980 Olympics, maybe the 1984, even though the 1984 would have been during my military service. So I'm there at the pre-qualifiers in the state of Israel, the pre-qualifiers uh, and, and after that, you know, there's another stage, another stage to actually get to the Olympics. I get lane number four. Now, if you know swimming, competitive swimming, you know that lane number four is given to the person with the best score in the state of Israel. So out of everybody in Israel, I get lane number four. Now, one of my mistakes there was that I was arrogant. I was arrogant. I was so sure that I'm going to win this that I did not warm up. My competitors warmed up. I did not. And sure enough, you know, we jump into the water and we start swimming the end of the first lap. It's 100 meters, so I'm, I'm after 50 and I'm first. I turn first. As I start swimming back, I started having cramps in my legs and one cramp and another cramp and another cramp. And it was getting really hard. And by the time I got to the end, I came in number four. Nope, didn't go to the Olympics. Didn't even get a medal. 
I actually stopped swimming after that. At least I stopped swimming competitively and, and I went into shooting. And once again, I started participating in competitive shooting uh, using uh, 22 long rifle uh, bullets or so very small bullets, uh, competitive bullets. It's the same rifles and the same bullets that they do use at the Olympics. I, I didn't plan on going to the Olympics or didn't think that I was going to make it. But in one of those competitions, I got the bronze medal. This would have been around 1981, I think, maybe even 1982. So I got a bronze medal, but the thing is, there was only one bronze medal, and there was only one silver medal, and there was only one gold medal in the entire state of Israel. So when I got the bronze medal, I came in number third total. Only three medals were given, and and I still have uh, that medal and, and a few others that I won. Then a few years ago, four years ago, so this would have been uh, 19, uh, yeah, 2017. In 2017, Maya, my daughter Maya, went to the regional gymnastics competition. So Maya was a gymnast for 14 years, and she was really, really, really great on floor. I don't think that she enjoyed the vault or beams or bars, uh, beam or bars, but but she was really great at floor, and she was very elegant, very graceful when she was on floor, and very precise. And she did some very good exercises. Well, year after year, she did not qualify for the regionals because they needed an all-around score that was high enough to, to make it to the regionals. Well, that was her last year. That was her senior year. And uh, if you don't make regional this year, then that, that's it. I mean, this is the end of gymnastics, unless you really become a professional. Well, Guess what? 2017, after the state meet, Maya made regionals. So we went down to the regionals competition. There were 683 participants. How many gold medals do you think they gave? Now, th th this is going to sound crazy. 683 participants, 259 gold medals were given. In other words, one in 2.6 people have got not a medal, a gold medal, 250, uh, 259 gold medals, 197 silver medals, 178 bronze medals. A total of 300, 634 medals were given for places one through three. In other words, 93% of the participants would, got, would get a medal for one to three. By the way, they gave more medals, just, you know, you participated, so here is a medal of participation. But even the one, two, three places, there were 634 medals. And granted, some got more than one medal and, and some uh, uh, got nothing. But in general, 93% of the number of participants was the number of medals, one, two, three. By the way, why were there different numbers? 259 gold medals, 197 silver and 178 bronze. I mean, why would there be more gold medals than silver and more silver than bronze? Well, very simple. They divided them into divisions, different ages, different, I don't know what, but, but so many divisions that some divisions actually only had one participant. And that one participant got five gold medals, a gold medal in every one of the events. So floor, bars, beams and vault. And one for the all-around, because you competed with anyone. That 
and, and there's more than just one division with one uh, participant. That participant went home, that gymnast went home with five gold medals. So you, you probably want to know how did Maya do too? Well, when Maya was about to go on floor, she came to me and she said, Daddy, if I want to get the gold medal here on floor, I need to get a score of more than 9.85. Why is it? Because the uh, so far in her division, there was a gymnast that did 9.825. So if Maya gets 9.85, she would get the gold medal. What I told her is, hey, Maya, you know what? Just go out there, have fun. This is the last competition you're going to be participating in because you're a senior. Just go have fun. Do, do the best you can, but, but don't worry about the competitors or, or anything else. She went on there. I could tell that she enjoyed it because she was smiling throughout the whole time. But she was doing well. I mean, she was sticking every landing. I mean, she didn't move an inch after every landing. And as she keeps on going through her routine, I'm thinking, man, this is good. This is really good. Then the score comes up. It was 9.925. So yes, that was the best uh, score. Of course, by the way, just to add to the drama, there was one more competitor going after her. And of course, just to add to the drama, everything else was done. It was only that one last competitor that was competing in floor, so all eyes on her. And of course, we don't know if she's going to make better than 9.925 and get the gold. Maya was, at that point, was a short silver, but maybe she can get the gold. Well, that other competitor had a very solid routine and she got 9.6. And that made Maya the gold medalist. Well, here's the thing. Maya's gold medal, Maya's score of 9.925, was the best in her division. It gave her the gold medal. It was best in that regional competition, period. Throughout all the events, not just floor, all the events, Maya's score was the best score in USAG Excel in 2017, the entire year. Maya's gold medal looked exactly the same as the other 258 gold medals. So I have to ask you, what differentiates Maya? What differentiates Maya from someone who competed in a division all by herself and got five gold medals because there was nobody to compete to? How does this push anyone to excel? And the answer is, it doesn't. You may know that I teach entrepreneurship in the graduate Cox Graduate School of Business in SMU University. And here's something that I tell my students in the first 15 minutes of my class. I tell them that it's going to be an order of magnitude easier for you to get an A in this class than to get me to say great job about the quality of your idea. Now, the, the class that I'm teaching is not a class about generating the idea or, or 
having a good idea. So this is why the grade is not really reflective of how good your idea is. The class is about your ability to criticize it, to know if it's good or bad, to know how differentiated it is, to know how much value it brings, to be able to write a business plan, defend that business plan, present that business plan. So that's what I what I grade them on. And as I said, it's an order of magnitude, easy to get an A because uh, you know I give them a lot of content and, and I, I help them throughout uh, the process. And not the quality of the idea. But some of them do build companies there. Some of them do want to start a new business and and do want to play with an idea. And I don't just want to tell them, great job, because, you know, that's what people do. And that's why I make that statement at the beginning of class, the first 15 minutes of the first lesson. I tell them that it's going to be an order of magnitude easier for you to get an A in this class by presenting a good business plan, defending the good business plan rather than get me to say great job about the quality of the idea itself. So why do we do that? Before I talk about the consequences, why do we do that? Why do we say great job so easily? Well, one reason is because we don't want to get sued. You know, if, if you go to my TED Talk, the TED Talk, uh, uh, my TED Talk was, uh, the title was, um, the day that forever changed America's culture. And I talk about uh, the fact that 1.7% of the GDP, the US GDP, is spent on civil litigation. I mean, we get sued for everything. I, I mean, I may not say great job and get sued because I'm not a good professor for, for not saying great job about something that's actually not great. The next reason we do that is because we don't feel comfortable giving feedback. You know, one thing that I found in my surveys was that people were 10 times more likely to say that they don't feel comfortable uh, arguing in in general. They they try to avoid arguments and uh, they, they feel that arguments are not productive. 10 times more when you have low trust than when you have high trust. You know, in in another episode, I think the next episode, I'll talk about the decline of trust and and why is trust declining. But the fact that trust is declining has a big impact because one thing that I found in my surveys is that there's a 106% correlation of my willingness to give feedback to the level of trust that I have in you in how you're going to take that feedback. You know, as, as a result, we're becoming weak. We're becoming weak in, in our inability to give feedback. They're becoming weak in their inability to to accept feedback, which kind of brings a line that I really love, and probably you do, uh, from uh, the movie A Few Good Men, when Jack Nicholson says, You want the truth? You want it? You can't handle the truth. Son, will you? Okay, never mind. So we can't handle the truth. And if they can't handle the truth that I'm 106% less uh, or or the opposite of 106% uh, less than willing to give that feedback. Now, one thing that I found is they don't trust me. They don't trust me that my feedback is coming from a place of wanting to really help them. They think that I'm just trying to hurt them. And and trust me, I, I had those conversations where I gave someone direct feedback and their reaction was a reaction where you're going to go, and, and I did go, that's the last time I give you feedback on something. By the way, I try to actually say that. when When somebody is 
not receptive to the feedback and by receptive i'm not expecting them to accept it and say okay this is it and i'm not going to do it it's it's a bad idea i'm just talking about how you're accepting i'm just talking about whether you're listening to that or not to to my feedback or not i found a 76 percent correlation of whether you trust me to whether you're going to be uh receptive to feedback that you come from me and then when when the feedback or or i give you feedback and and i try and do it as best as i can and you have a severe allergic reaction to my feedback guess if i'm going to give you feedback again no so how does that serve you the fact that i'm not going to give you direct unfiltered unsweetened feedback you know we don't even know how to give feedback well and that that's probably one of the reasons why people are so not receptive and this is going to be something that i'm going to talk about in a later episode uh that will be titled probably based on one of my my sessions that i deliver give feedback like you care take feedback like it matters so i'll talk more about that uh in a later show but you know if you're about to give feedback and you're not even sure if the other person is going to be receptive or not, one thing that goes through your mind today is, hey, you know what? Life's too short. Let's kick that can down the road. Let's make this somebody else's problem. And that's why we don't give feedback, real feedback. This is why we say great job instead of saying what we really mean. One more place where you can find another analysis of this is uh, my eighth book that's called Cause of Death, Political Correctness. I wrote this together with Lori Van, who's a non-suicidal self-injury specialist and counselor. Uh, We collaborated on that. The, The subtitle of the book is How Political Correctness Kills Creativity, Productivity and Children. That might be another source for you to read some of the research behind why we say great job. Let's talk consequences now. What if I said great job to something that is mediocre? Because remember, one in 3,000 is really going to be a great job if we're talking about product launch. One thing I did mention in that same study from 1997, it's one in 3,000 generally one in 6,000 in the uh, pharmaceutical industry. Just saying. So what if you you brought up something and I said, great job, and you don't know that it's really mediocre? First of all, what I'm doing is I'm misleading you. I am misleading you to think that this is a great job. And, and I'm misleading you because I'm probably in a position of authority so, for example, I'm your entrepreneurship professor, and I tell you that this is a great job, and, and therefore you think that it is, when in fact it's not. Here's what's going to happen. When you start with this idea, you start pushing it up a staircase. That staircase, is, as you go up, two things happen. One is the criticality of the evaluation increases. People are becoming more critical, more objective in criticizing your ideas and the emotional investment declines because you're as as emotionally invested in your idea as anybody ever will be everybody else are less so you start with with your own idea and and you're starting to spend time and you're starting to spend money and first it's your time and it's your money and then you go you reach out to your friends and family 
and you ask them for money. Now, what are they going to do? They're going to give you their money. You know why? One, because they want to make you happy. They are friends. They are your family. But the other is, think about that. You're spending $100,000 a year in tuition to this uh, graduate school and the professor there, who's obviously not just someone off the street, he obviously is an expert, said it was a great job. So they will give you money. And it's really my fault because I said great job and it wasn't. And you don't know that it's not. Then the first customers you're going to get are your friends who are going to buy it and not even use it just because they're your friends. So now you think you're getting validation. No, you're not. They're still going off of your relationship with them and the fact that stupid me said that this was a great job. Then you get early investors. Now it's starting to get, they're, they're starting to be more critical, more objective. Then you get venture capitalists. Then you get real customers. This is where a rubber meets the road because there are a lot of people who are going to think that this is a good idea. And once rubber meets the road and real customers with absolute no emotional investment or any relationship with you are going to buy it and use it and recommend it to somebody else, this is what makes a good idea. But you're going to fail somewhere between here and there because I misled you. Because I said it was a great idea and it was not. But what if you know that it's not a good idea? What if you came up with something and you think to yourself, hey, it's stupid and uh, I'm going to ask uh, Yoram and, and I said it's a great idea. Now, I, I may say it's a great idea and convince you that it's a great idea. Uh, then we're going back to the I'm misleading you. But let's say that I said great job or great idea and you still know that it's mediocre. There are one of two things that you're going to think about me. One is that I'm too incompetent to tell that it's not a good idea. So you're going to come up with something stupid and, and you know that it's stupid and you bring it up to me and I go, great job. And you're thinking, OK, so he's incompetent, right? By the way, that's part of my model now. This is the competence component of the who you are. I'm not competent. Or alternatively, I'm lying to you. You know it's a mediocre job. I know that it's mediocre. You know that I know that it's mediocre. But I say great job, which means that I'm lying to you. Once again, if I go back to my model, this is the who you are, this is the personality compatibility and specifically the top of that pyramid, the universal part where there is an absolute good and an absolute bad and an absolute bad is lying. When I lie to you, there is no personality compatibility. I'm a person who lies to you. By the way, it also fits into the uh, what you do part of the uh, model, the, the specifically the BS. The BS part of positivity. I, I don't say what I mean. Either way, whether I'm incompetent enough to, to think that it's a good job when you know it's mediocre, or I'm lying because I know that it's mediocre and I tell you that it's a, a great job, either way, I should not be trusted because I don't meet those components of the trust model. Let's stick with trust in, in this whole uh, participation trophy. Trophy. So can you trust someone based on the fact that they have a trophy or they have a medal or that someone said, great job, a, a, prof a respectable professor in a respectable university told you that you have a great idea or it's a great job. 
Well, we can't. If we know that everybody is playing fast and loose with trophies and medals and saying great job, which, by the way, is all part of the uh, competence part, a third-party part, uh, certification. So, for example, I talked about that in the previous uh, episode when I said when Subaru has the, their TV commercial and say, we are trusted, they don't say we are trusted because we said so. They say we are trusted because Kelly Blue Book, a third-party certification agency, said that we are the most trusted uh, car manufacturer. So... But if you know that they're just giving away trophies and giving away medals and giving away this most trusted to every car manufacturer, will you trust them based on that certification? The answer is no. Now I'm going to touch on something and hopefully I'm not going to get overly emotional because this is another pet peeve of mine, uh, possibly even bigger than great job, and that's best-selling authors. And I'm I'm not getting into this right now, but this designation, I'm going to say self-designation or very loosely designated best-selling author um, is is another one of my pet peeves. And I will talk about that. I I will have an entire episode just about this whole best-selling author and and even thought leader uh, perspective. But that I'll do in another episode. So what do you do? First of all, say great job or great idea only when you really think that it is a great job, when you know that it's a great job, not when you think because you don't know enough, when you really think and really know that this is a great job. You know what? If this is a business idea, say great job when you're really to personally put money into it. Trophies, give trophies and medals to winners, to Big group winners. Yes, it's going to be harder to get a medal. And if we're going to have people who are, uh, if we think that people are going to stop competing because they don't get gold medals, you know what? I think that we are causing them to be weaker. And I think that by that, we're actually going to make them stronger. They're going to fight harder to win a trophy, to win a medal. There should be only one winner in a business plan competition, not half of the participants who submitted. And you know something? If 20 companies have submitted business plans for a business plan competition and none of them I think is viable, maybe we shouldn't give a single trophy, a single award. You have to start with trust. And when I say start with trust, you have to start with trusting that the person you're about to give direct, unfiltered, unsweetened feedback can take it. Can take the truth. I'm not doing that well. Never mind. As I said, give feedback like you care and take feedback like it matters. And, and as I promised, this will be a whole episode by itself just, just on that. I want to give you a definition before I, I, I finish. Um, negative feedback. When I say negative feedback, I don't mean giving feedback in a negative way, like insulting feedback or, or trying to belittle someone. When, when I say negative feedback, what I mean is feedback about something negative that happened, something negative that you have done, you know, the negativity, the negative elements of, of your idea. So I want you to remember this. Positive feedback makes you feel better. Negative feedback makes you better. Can't believe we're already past the 30-minute mark, but I'm, I'm done with this topic. So 
let me summarize it first of all the two words that are probably responsible for launching more failed businesses than any other two words in the english language and probably in history are great job or or even great idea this episode was more of an opinion it was my opinion uh, about one of my biggest pet peeves and and that is how fast and loose we are with the term uh great job it's linked to trust the lack of trust, the decline of trustworthiness, and the decline of excellence and exceptionalism. I told you why we do that, why we say great job when, when we really don't think so. I told you what are the consequences of that. If I tell you great job and you don't, you don't know that it's not, or even when you do know, and when you know that it's mediocre and you know that I know that it's mediocre, that all causes lack of trust. Well, this was the last episode of season two, and we're going to start season three, recording season three next week. So first of all, I want you to uh, know to I'll, I'll kind of summarize it. Season one was the what is trust. It had the eight laws of trust and, and a few other things. Season two that ends now focused on what makes you trustworthy. So I shared my model, the six components, the two parts, the who you are and what you do. Season three is going to cover the how, the process that will make you more trusted through seven steps. This will complete what uh, I may end up calling the Trust 867 model. Eight laws of trust, six components of trustworthiness, and seven steps to become trusted. I'll see you in the next season. What would you like to know about trust and trustworthiness? Let me know and I'll make sure to answer it or find the answer to it in a future episode. I would love to hear from you. Email me at yoram at thetrustshow.com. That's Y-O-R-A-M at thetrustshow.com. If you like this podcast episode, subscribe to the show so you will automatically get new episodes. Rate it. Write a review for this podcast because those ratings would help others who are looking for a podcast just like this. If you're looking for more resources to learn about how to build trust, be trusted, or know who to trust, look up my online course at trustedatwork.com. Find my books on Amazon or go to my website, yoramsolomon.com. And remember one thing, the answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure. Can I trust you? And can you trust me? Thank you for listening.